south of the United States, the blue waters of the Caribbean Sea once were known as the Spanish Main. This was because pirates sailed along these shores. Today, fast white steamships travel across the Caribbean with cargoes more valuable than pirates' gold. And officers in trim white uniforms pick up their golden cargoes from a place we call Banana Land. This land, as you see on the map, extends from Mexico on the north, includes Guatemala and Honduras, Costa Rica and Panama, Colombia on the northern coast of South America, and the islands of Cuba, Jamaica, and the Dominican Republic. Some of the capital cities of Banana Land are as large as Jacksonville, Florida, or Fort Worth, Texas. This is Guatemala City, as seen from the air. And with banana leaves carefully protecting them from the sun, you might like to know the banana is one of the few fruits that loses its flavor if allowed to ripen on the plant. The banana must be cut green and ripened artificially. And while we think of it as a hearty everyday food, this is only because so much care is taken to see that it arrives at our tables in good condition. Even building a railroad to haul bananas through this tropical country is a story in itself. One of the first banana railways took 25 years to build only a hundred miles of track. The ship, one of the great white fleet, meets the train, then begins the race against time to get the bananas into the air-conditioned hold of the ship. It is interesting to know that if it were not for fast transportation, bananas in North America and the rest of the world would be a rare delicacy, a fruit no one could afford to have or to buy. Uh, it's been to me a very graphic experience to see this exhibit of what the communists were doing in Guatemala. Uh, Guatemala has always been a country in which we in the United States of America have had a great interest. Uh, our two peoples have been friends. And yet we see in this exhibit what happened to this country under the regime of the communists. The atrocity pictures which we saw at the beginning are almost too uh, difficult to describe. And then we have seen mountains and mountains of literature, some of it in back of us, in which they were attempting to change the minds of the people and to warp them over to supporting international communism. We have seen also motion picture films, uh, motion picture films that were sent airmail direct from Moscow to Guatemala uh, and which had as their purpose again to propagandize the people and win them over to communism from the principles of freedom and liberty for which your government stands. Uh, I think too that I would not want this opportunity to pass without expressing on behalf of the people of the United States, of free peoples everywhere, of people who want to be free behind the Iron Curtain, our appreciation to you, to those who worked with you in fighting against the communist government and overthrowing it.
Once upon a time, spying or espionage was a fairly straightforward game. But we have come a long way rather quickly from Mata Harry. There is something new in the science of spying. It's not just stealing military hardware and secret plans, but using tanks and plans and men to promote our policies around the world and sometimes to overthrow governments we don't like. Both sides in the Cold War do it, both sides deny it. In the spy business, the dagger is replacing the cloak. And that is what this program is about. Welcome everyone to another episode of WetWired. Today we'll be telling the story of a fragile young democracy, a foreign-sponsored coup, and a pirate radio station. I'm Sean Ondas. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. Atención Guatemala, atención guatemaltecos, Radio Liberación en 6.360 kilociclos onda corta les habla. Esta es la emisora clandestina del Movimiento Libertador guatemalteco, operando en su frecuencia de 6.360 kilociclos onda corta y desde algún lugar secreto de la República. Escúchenos ustedes y sabrá la realidad del momento político porque atraviesa Guatemala y los progresos irrefutables del gran movimiento libertador. Durante el transcurso de nuestras transmisiones diarias, damos a ustedes música, comentarios y noticias en general y demostramos... On May 1st, coinciding with the workers' holiday May Day in 1954, Guatemalans found a new station on their shortwave radios. Radio Liberación, the voice of the liberation, announced itself as a clandestine transmitter, broadcasting from a secret place within the Republic of Guatemala and reporting on the crimes of the communists. For this episode, we relied on extensive reporting from Sylvia Brindis Snow and Shane Snow, as well as investigative reporting done by Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer, and published in their book, Bitter Fruit, as well as historian Nick Cullither's book, Strange History. Additional background research comes from David Talbot's book, The Devil's Chessboard. This is sort of a new episode, uh, or this is sort of a new style of episode for us. And since it involves so much research, we'll definitely include links in the show notes. In an early broadcast from Radio Liberación, the host explained that their program would be 15 minutes of music, 15 minutes of our radio campaign, 15 minutes of Communism Revealed, followed by another 15 minutes of music. Their broadcasts over the next weeks described how then-President Juan Jacobo Arbenz Guzman and members of his cabinet spent lavishly on cars and houses. They talked about the orgies Arbenz regularly attended, that there was a special fund for government-sponsored propaganda, and that his administration was also secretly funneling money to the Soviet Union to help finance their efforts to build an atomic arsenal. 
On May 26, 1954, the announcer claimed that they had an informant who had given them the communists' entire plan. The informant revealed to them the secret communist plot to use propaganda with the intention of painting the United States as a warmonger. All of these reports were bookended by music from marimba bands and popular songs such as That's Amore, performed by Dean Martin, and Patti Page's You Belong to Me. Nice job. That sounded really good. See the pyramids along the Watch the sunrise on a tropic Just remember, darling, all the while You belong to me See the marketplace in old Algiers Send me photographs by that June, Radio Liberacion's anti-communist refrains gave way to reports of communist-inspired violence erupting in parts of the country. They announced that Guatemala's military, directed by Arbenz himself, had attacked neighboring countries, but that the Liberation Army had risen up to retake the country from the corrupt Arbenz and restore the nation. They announced on June 20th, 1954, that the town of Esquipulas was in the hands of the Liberation Army and told women that they must do their part. Now is the time, the host said, now or never. The station then delivered a special message to the Guatemalan army. Army, attention, you're defending a foreign intervention by international communism. For your own good, for that of your families, you should join ranks with the Army of Liberation. This was followed by reports from the front of the conflict between the Liberation Army and Guatemalan National Forces. Zone L3, you're surrounded. Surrender immediately. Given the government's response, we have decided that force will be fought with force. Attention Group 17 of the Liberation Army in Sector 045. Advance to the northeast 12 kilometers. The area is clear. Await Patrol 8 from the Arcadia Group. Good luck. And in another broadcast... Radio Liberacion, calling Agent Bernardo. Wait at the agreed place. Two hours later, launch the attack in Sector R-25. The map shows the exact location of the target. Good luck. Signed, the High Command. This all sounds exactly like H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Oh, I know. It's it's wild. It is just wild. I, I mean, that broadcast, of course, in the in the early 20th century that, that supposedly caused a panic, but there's a lot of, bit of historical mixed reviews on what exactly happened it's zone l3 you're surrounded um it's just so oddly specific <laughs> await patrol eight uh, attention group 17 <laughs> attack the sector in r25 yeah <laughs> other events lent credibility to the radio transmissions at dawn on june 18th a c-47 transport plane was seen above guatemala city it flew low directly over the presidential palace, dropping thousands of leaflets before climbing quickly and disappearing from view. Printed on the leaflets in tall black letters was, Guatemala's president, Jacobo Arbenz, must resign immediately. The leaflet also carried the warning that if Arbenz did not resign by the end of the day, the plane would return to bomb the national palace and the city's arsenal. 
The appearance of planes dropping leaflets wasn't a unique event for many Guatemalans. On May 26th and later on June 6th, a single-engine Beechcraft dropped messages to the army. Those leaflets warned the officers that President Arbenz was planning to disband the military and replace it with a civilian force answering directly to him. Those leaflets were playing off of a real event that had occurred in Guatemala uh, that had occurred in Guatemala in that time period, where uh, President Arbenz had tried to create this civil defense force that was, you know, was meant to be a backup plan, basically. He wanted to, to sort of augment the standing army. Exactly. So it was it was just meant as an auxiliary to the army, but that was spun into this idea that the the civil defense force, which was really just people, and you know, really uh, and actually directly drawn from the ranks of labor unions, and that was an angle that was that was being exploited as well, that. They these labor unions were um, were asked to send lists of members because this was already an organized group and it already had a structure in place. So those people were were asked to uh, to appear and basically to be to be tasked with maintaining national defense in the case of an emergency, almost like a kind of national guard. That that's really what it was. I mean they. they the, but the fact that it was labor unions was was something that was was uh, was exploited by people who were trying to defame the government. Guatemalan papers delivered regular reports about a man named Carlos Castillo Armas, who led a small band of Guatemalan exiles based in neighboring Honduras. Armas was a former colonel and an open enemy of Arbenz's regime. Armas was also a vocal supporter of Francisco Javier Arana, who had masterminded a failed coup against Arbenz's predecessor, Juan José Arevalo, in 1948. Taken altogether, there had been 30 failed coups in the last nine years. Arevalo alone survived 20 assassination attempts during the six years he served as president. In fact, one such plot to assassinate President Arbenz had been discovered just weeks earlier, at the end of May. It really boggles my mind how many times you hear some historical narrative about whichever country, and there are plenty, where they talk about how many failed coups there are. You'd think that you're going to all this trouble to organize a coup or an assassination attempt against someone, and how can you fuck it up so many times in a row? I, I am really trying to get into the head of the person who is putting together this assassination plot for the ninth time and then bungles it. I think a lot What's of this going has to do with failed like, attempts. A lot of the failures have to do with, with the fact that most of the time, and there's obvious exceptions and we know them from, from world history, but most of the time, assassination plots are cooked up by cranks and groups of cranks. <laughs> yeah. And they're not famous for good organization. So it, I, I should stop picturing so much an assassination assassination attempt by some sort of well-organized secret organization lurking in the shadows, and more the guy with the tinfoil hat screaming on the corner. I, I think I think it's uh, maybe well, a blend of the two. It, except it's a, it's going to be the guy with the tinfoil hat screaming on the corner, often getting nudged and egged on by somebody else. So you end up with <laughs> yeah. like the people who get caught are the fall guys. 
You know, they're the patsies. Those are the ones who get yeah. busted. The ones who are typically behind the assassinations, they they don't ever get their hands dirty. So they're recruiting the guys with the tinfoil hats. On June 18th, one or possibly more planes, depending on whose account we follow, open fire on the port of San Jose and the town of Retahulu. Skirmishes had broken out between Guatemalan soldiers in a border outpost and a few dozen of Castillo Armas's men. Also on June 18th, Castillo Armas's full invasion force of 480 men, split into four groups, crossed into Guatemala from Honduras and El Salvador. Meeting little resistance initially, Armas took the town of Esquipulas. And basically the little resistance was the only people there were the local police force. It was like eight guys with sidearms. <laughs> I I imagine a, a Western film where there's the sheriff and the one jail cell. Yeah, that's basically what was going on in Esquipulas. I mean, this is this is a town by 1950s Central America standards. And that, yeah. that mean, I mean, there were there were, you know, maybe a thousand people lived there. <laughs> Blazing saddles, where <laughs> yeah, where we have the drunk in the tank, and that's, that's the only that's occupant. Exactly, they had to they had to let the drunk out to put in somebody else. <laughs> this is like invading Mayberry. <laughs> Armed Guatemalan insurgents stand guard at a Honduras airstrip, while newspaper men press near a lone plane seeking passage over the rocky wooded hills to the border town of Esquipulas capital of the free Guatemalan government. Aircraft parachute meager supplies to the pasture airstrip as the rebel drive to oust the red-tinged government bogs down. The shabbily clad, poorly trained troops striking from Honduras overran the sleepy town of Esquipulas, forcing the natives to surrender in a bloodless battle. Hampered by a lack of motorized equipment, the rebels, armed with submachine guns and German rifles, are unable to move against the fleeing enemy. But from their headquarters, Colonel Rodolfo Mendoza, chief of the Liberation Army Air Force, and General Carlos Castillo Armas, leader of the insurgents, spoke confidently of victory as these films were released. Still, their claims seem premature in the revolt in Guatemala. Coinciding with Armas's invasion, a World War II-era P-47 bombed the Matamoros Fortress in Guatemala City. Nevertheless, emboldened by these early successes, Armas demanded Arbenz's resignation. But by this point in the proceedings in Guatemala, international media in the United States was not at all convinced that Armas was going to be successful. Armas's winning streak wouldn't last long. Despite the psychological effects of the bombing runs, Armas's planes were all shot down within a few days. His ground attacks on both the towns of Zacapa and Puerto Barrios were repelled, leading to the death or capture of most of his soldiers. From the book Secret History by CIA historian Nick Colother, Castillo Armas's invaders were not making the sort of bold strikes needed to inspire terror in the capital. On the 20th, his forces captured Esquipulas, barely three miles from the border and defended only by a small police force. Meanwhile, a column of 122 rebels approaching Sacapa from the northeast encountered a small garrison of 30 soldiers, led by Lieutenant Cesar Augusto Silva Hiron, at the small town of Gualan. Without instructions or reinforcements from the larger garrison at Sacapa, Hiron engaged the rebels in a 36-hour firefight forcing them to flee toward La Unión, between Gualan and Sacapa. 
Only 30 rebels escaped death or capture. The casualties included their commanding officer. The survivors reported that they had been, quote, decisively defeated by a superior force. I guess you have to spin it to make sure that uh, it didn't seem like you were running away from a fight. The, yeah, that superior like, force there, was there, a there were 10 of their them. size. Like, no, there there were 20 of them, I mean. I mean, uh, I mean there were 50 of them. <laughs> <laughs> we were surrounded. We were except they were they were coming at us from all sides. <laughs> <laughs> they were coming right for us. <laughs> we, we barely escaped with our lives. <laughs> Despite the almost total failure of Armas's assault, rumors began to travel through the ranks of Guatemala's military. After receiving reports on the troops that were sent to reinforce the town of Zacapa, the acting secretary general informed President Arbenz that he did not believe the troops would fight. The officers had grown to believe that the United States was supporting Armas's invasion and that there could be no hope of victory. An additional report confirmed this belief among the officers and carried a request from them asking President Arbenz to resign. Rumors were just flying in this time period. There were so many, there were so many rumors about wh- who was behind Castillo Armas. There, there wasn't, it, it really wasn't clear, but there was a lot of suspicion that from citizens in Guatemala and especially in the military that the United States was behind all of this. And a lot of this was, uh, was reinforced by the fact that there had been U.S. made World War II era planes flying overhead. The plane dropping the leaflets over Guatemala City was a C-47, which is a U.S. military cargo plane. They're seeing um, P-37s and P-42s flying over, uh, dropping bombs and and strafing targets. So the the connection, you know, that on its own was enough for a lot of people to connect these events to the United States. We have to keep in mind, as we're looking at this moment in history in the mid-1950s, that we're looking at it from 2023. In our context right now, our problem is not enough information. It is too much information. We need algorithms to sift through it to find the information that we're seeking because there's so such an abundance of information about what's going on right now that we have... I mean, even even just before the internet, there was plenty of information where you had broadcast TV and things like that. In 1954, in Guatemala, the weight of rumor was much more significant because the weight of and uh, prevalence of other forms of media to tell you what's going on was either A, less reliable, or B, just not there. You You had your radio stations and... Uh, I doubt there was a lot of TV broadcasts going on and your newspapers. Well, and, so, and, and if there were TV broadcasts, that'd be one thing, but Guatemalans didn't have televisions. But they, that wasn't exactly. a very How many houses thing. are going to have a, t- a TV in there? Right. So, so we're talking about radio and TV as, I'm sorry, radio and, and newspaper as the primary forms of uh, uh, media that are being distributed to communicate what's going on in the world. Something else was happening at this time, too. There was just purely, just by bad fucking luck for President Arbenz, Guatemala's national radio station was undergoing repairs. And so it was actually not broadcasting 
for some something in the neighborhood of three weeks during this time. With this this vacuum of, of official reporting that was being or, or official reporting that was being broadcast over the air, and the presence of Radio Liberación, there was no real competing narrative that Guatemalan citizens could hear. The other thing that was happening is that when broadcast did resume, there were reports across Guatemala of really, really poor reception. And President Arbenz and his cabinet were convinced that there that that certain frequencies were being jammed by somebody. So the the jamming, I mean, th- th- there's a question you know, that I I definitely had. How does jamming work? Well, jamming works, or as a jamming is accomplished by broadcasting basically just static, just white noise with a more powerful transmitter on the frequencies that normally would be used to broadcast news or something like that. So whatever band these the the Guatemalan stations were normally broadcasting on, there was another radio transmitter that was broadcasting at a higher power at that same frequency, but just broadcasting static. So when people tune into it, that's what they hear. They hear this this static because it's coming in at a higher power. We're also looking at the delay of information around the world at that time. It's not as instantaneous as we have it now, which is granted, but it's easy to forget the context through the eyes of the people who were experiencing it at that time. It's easy to slip into our own point of view and and forget how much weight rumors really had as potentially legitimate information right next to newspapers and radio, and how much weight newspapers and radio were having as very limited sources of information of what was really going on day by day, minute by minute. And the most minute by minute is going to be radio. On June 27th of the same year, Radio Liberación announced the resignation of President Arbenz. As word spread, news outlets in the United States rejoiced. Peace comes to Guatemala. For the first time in 10 years, the people of Guatemala are breathing the sweet air of liberty. Only days after the resignation of Red President Jacobo Arbenz, rebel leader Castillo Armas sweeps into town. Thousands of communists and fellow travelers are rounded up in makeshift prisons. For United Fruit, it's business as usual, as all company land seized by the communists is returned. And those sentiments were echoed in the highest offices of the U.S. government. On television, Secretary of State Dulles announces the return of democracy to Guatemala. The future of Guatemala lies at the disposal of the Guatemalan people themselves. It lies also at the disposal of leaders loyal to Guatemala who have not treasonably become the agents of an alien despotism which sought to use Guatemala for its own evil ends. The events of recent months and days add a new and glorious chapter to the already great tradition of the American states.
Uh, I think, too, that I would not want this opportunity to pass without expressing on behalf of the people of the United States, of free peoples everywhere, of people who want to be free behind the Iron Curtain, our appreciation to you, to those who worked with you in fighting against the communist government and overthrowing it. This is the first time in the history of the world that the communist government has been overthrown by the people. And for that, we congratulate you and the people of Guatemala for the support they have given. And we are sure that under your leadership, supported by the people whom I have met by the hundreds on my visit to Guatemala, that Guatemala is going to enter a new era in which there will be prosperity for the people together with liberty for the people. Thank you very much for allowing us to see this exhibit of communism in Guatemala. That same day, after exhausting all military and diplomatic options, President Jacobo Arbenz, currently in the fourth year of a six-year term and only the second democratically elected president in the 133-year history of the independent nation of Guatemala, recorded and had broadcast by radio a final address to his people. Though due to the jamming of most radio transmissions other than Radio Liberacion, it's unclear how many, if any, Guatemalans heard Arbenz's farewell to his country. This is a section of Arbenz's speech translated by the CIA and released as part of their historical review program. A cruel war against Guatemala has been unleashed. The United Fruit Company and U.S. monopolies together with U.S. ruling circles are responsible. They have taken the pretext of communism. The truth is elsewhere, in financial interests of the United Fruit Company and other U.S. firms that have invested much in Guatemala. After thinking it over, I have taken a great decision of great importance for our country. I have decided to quit power, turn the executive over to Carlos Enrique Diaz, Chief of the Armed Forces. I am thinking only of the people. I think it is my duty to contribute to save what we have gained. I took the presidency with great faith in the democratic system, in freedom, in the idea that economic independence could be won. I still believe the program is fair. My faith in democratic freedom, in the independence of Guatemala, has not been lost. In his speech, Arbenz addressed directly what he knew to be facts and what many Guatemalans strongly suspected. There was no communist plot within Arbenz's government. The, the one thing that he did that was not necessarily pro-communist, but was, wasn't explicitly anti-communist, is that he repealed or re he removed the previous prohibitions against the Communist Party in Guatemala. That was, the, that was it. That was the only non-anti-communist thing that he did. Really, part of it was that his reforms were attracting leftists of various sorts, including- Well, they, they, liked the, they liked the social justice aspect to the reforms. This was not a communist regime. It was not, it was not. It, it was, what I was saying is that he, he opened it up so that with his reforms, so that people on the left, uh, communists, Marxists, and so forth, uh, but also uh, simply, what we would today probably classify as progressives, perhaps, 
were were very attracted to what he was doing. It was very popular among those crowds, and so much so that uh, Ernesto Che, that Che, Guevara, uh, traveled immediately after after completing his doctorate in Argentina up there. Oh my where God! He Did you just say Argentina? Che. Did you say Argentina? Argentina. All right. Arg- oh my God. <laughs> we're going back and forth between Spanish and English here. It's very difficult. <laughs> all right uh but but he that's where he acquired the name che was 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 in guatemala when he was uh uh contributing to um some of some of the agricultural projects there and that's from where he was uh, he he had to flee when the coup happened he had to flee from there and he he took refuge in the argentinian embassy and went from there to mexico which is where he met raul castro and then subsequently fidel castro in mexico city that's the context of the world at that time we it was a year later that cuba had its successful revolution we just went over argentina and now you say cuba cuba all right (laughs) cuba (laughs) say 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 enchilada Enchilada. <laughs> Enchilada. How do you like that? Burrito. Burrito. Taco. God. I can be as obnoxious as you like. <laughs> you know, Che Che also learned something else during this time period. During the revolution in Cuba, they also used a private radio station to transmit misinformation. And to help disrupt military actions from the dictatorship in Cuba and confuse military orders as a precursor to the revolution. Yeah. So he, he they learned directly from what was going on in Guatemala about how to use misinformation. <laughs> what many Guatemalans also suspected was that there was no civil war and little fighting had actually taken place in the country. What the broadcast had called the Liberation Army was in reality, as Sylvia and Shane Snow put it, a few dozen pissed-off exiles hiding out six miles from the border of Honduras, staging strategic photos for the press, like a bunch of 1950s-era Instagram influencers holding donated rifles. The invasion was more smoke than bombs. What Arbenz also knew well, but was almost completely unknown to Guatemala's citizens, was that nearly every second of what Guatemalans had heard for the past two months on Radio Liberación had been a lie. Worse than a lie, according to declassified U.S. documents, the voice of the liberation wasn't even broadcasting from Guatemala. The reports that the announcers delivered were pre-recorded and broadcast from a shack in Nicaragua. The studio where they were recorded? That was located thousands of miles away from Guatemala, in a town called Opalaca, in Florida. Damn it! It's Florida again! Why does Florida keep haunting us? It haunts all of the Americas, not just the United States. (laughs) Since the 50s. (laughs) Since the 50s. Located in a concealed business office, the operation behind the radio transmissions, dubbed PB Success, was all organized by the CIA. 
U.S. Ambassador to Guatemala John E. Purifoy denied knowing anything about the origin of the U.S.-made P-47 planes that had bombed and strafed sites around the country, including the National Palace. Recounted in Schlesinger and Kinzer's Bitter Fruit, he told Guatemala's foreign minister, Jorge Torrejo, P-47 planes could be found in many countries, even Czechoslovakia and Russia. And, I saw no machine gunning of the palace! In a later meeting, Purifoy referred to Armas' invasion force as a rebel uprising and claimed there were no reliable reports of bombings across the country. We'll end on these words, again from Bitter Fruit. Though the American public was only dimly aware of it, an audacious social experiment had been underway in Guatemala, which seemed so threatening to powerful interests in the United States that they felt obliged to intervene to halt the process. There is simply too much story to tell here in a single episode. Our intention is to turn this chapter in the history of Guatemala into a multi-part series that describes how these events coincided and were largely caused by a developing interventionist and business-aligned attitude within the United States government. There are a few other sides to the story of the CIA Operation PB Success and its predecessor PB Fortune that need to be episodes in their own right. In this period of U.S. foreign policy, we see the fruition of decades of effort and planning by a cadre of actors within the U.S. government and private corporations that would shape the early stages of the Cold War and ripple up until the present day. We'll look at what was happening in Guatemala that seemed threatening enough to officials in the U.S. government that they would plan and execute a coup on its sitting president. We'll also be looking at the roles of some specific people in the U.S. government and businesses who were major influences in that project. Specifically, Alan Dulles, director of the CIA, his brother John Foster Dulles, secretary of state, John Purifoy, ambassador to Guatemala, Edward Bernays, the propagandist and political influencer who was retained by the United Fruit Company, as well as a few others. These are all people whose adventurism directly affected generations of Guatemalans. Uh, 1954, the U.S., the CIA, intervenes in Guatemala, undermines the civilian government, the government is overthrown, and from 1954 on, Guatemala has had one succession of military rulers after another, a military dictatorship. In the aftermath of this operation in 1954, the CIA set up an internal security service, and then others. But from these services set up and supported by the CIA all through the years came the death squads. In other words, the services established by the CIA then spawned these death squads in Guatemala. Nobody knows how many have been killed in Guatemala by these military regimes uh, which started with the CIA. Some say 100,000, some say 125,000, some say 150,000. Who knows? Nobody will ever really know the um, the exact number who have been killed. Their adventurism actually affected millions of people elsewhere in the world too, but it's just the two of us. We're a small shop, so we're trying to stay focused on one big story at a time. We can, we can only cover so many coups. <laughs> right. <laughs> Future installments in this Banana Land series will be released as we write them, so make sure to look for them throughout the rest of the year. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Wetwired. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at wetwiredpod. Be sure to join our Discord, which is picking up a little bit. I'm trying to post more things there, and uh, if you kind of want to get sort of a hidden insight of what I'm thinking about next, I'm starting to post much more of the things as I'm reading them or coming across them, but may or may not make it to the episode, but are kind of interesting, like articles and videos and stuff like that. Notably, if you want to see our premium episodes, we have a back catalog of like 14 now. Uh, Sign up to our Patreon. We've got uh, very few of the $3 memberships left, and then they're all out forever. And then it's a grand whopping huge massive amount of five bucks. <laughs> We're also accepting suggestions for future episodes. So if you have an idea for a show and you want to hear our take on it, it doesn't matter if somebody else has covered it, at least not necessarily, because we might have a different perspective. We might have different things to say about it. Um, so it could be something you heard on another podcast and you'd just like to hear what we think about it. Just let us know. You know where to find us. So until next time, everybody. See you later. Atención, Guatemala. Atención, Guatemala. Atención, guatemaltecos. Aquí está Radio Liberación, la emisora clandestina del Gran Movimiento Libertador, transmitiendo desde territorio liberado guatemalteco. If, uh, if we believe the Constitution says about the responsibility of Congress to declare war, for example, to have the CIA at the direction of a president actually fomenting or carrying on a war in a country, if it were to do this, without any kind of congressional approval, I think would put some real strain uh, on the Constitution. Uh, it's interesting to note that uh, people from small countries, or Latin American countries, for example, uh, are always greatly concerned about our CIA because a, a secret agency of this kind in a relatively small country with a weak government can become the, the real force of government. <laughs>